0: What matters most? What do we
1: need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Betty Klamenko broke the mould when she entered the Supercars Championship in 2013. Since then, she is now the popular motorsport matriarch has won Bathurst, the pinnacle, the holy grail of the sport. Betty Klamenko, welcome to Short Black. Welcome. It's great to have you here. And I've wanted to meet you for so long. You have one of the most incredible stories, not just rags to riches. Yes, you know, your dad was, and I always say school neck because I don't care how much money you've got. But then, you, you know, you walked away from that. Tell us about that backstory where you had to say to your dad, listen, I don't care who you are and how much money you've got. I've met the man of my dreams
2: and I'm sticking with him. It was, it was a difficult time for me because I'd met Daniel and I was 30 years old. I'd already been married and divorced and had two children and he was 19 and he still lived at home with his parents and he was just a teenager. And somehow, I know it sounds weird, but we met and fell in love and knew we were going to spend the rest of our lives together in the first five minutes. But to get to that point that was acceptable took a few years. And my father said, this is not Pitt Street, this is George Street, because Pitt Street was a two-way and George was one-way. And he said, you walk out the door, you walk out of everything. And that's what I did. And it was hard for me because I just thought there were fairies that picked up your clothes and did your washing and did everything else. And Daniel had the patience to teach me how to do all that and to make food and lunches and it was a hard time and I thought that was going to be the rest of my life but luckily my dad saw the light and took me back in. Well
1: let's go back and explain your dad was the late Westfield co-founder John Saunders and his wife Etta yes and it's been a rocky road in part but you've had a really incredible childhood adopted at how old seven weeks? Seven weeks.
2: Has that defined you in any way? Not at all. In fact, it's given me freedom because everyone says, oh, you've got to know where you come from. You've got to know your history. You've got to know. You don't have to know because you are living your life. You're not living your ancestor's life. You're not living, you know, even your parents' life. You are living your own life. And I didn't take anything from my past forward with me. Every day I just went, no, nah, this is me, this is my life, and this is how I want to be remembered. And after my father died, I wanted to make my own footprint, and that's why I went into motorsport and not continue on in construction and building, which we, I still do, but only part-time.
1: Well, look, I'm the mother of a, an adopted daughter, so I, I get it. And I, I just have been impressed in reading your story when you've been quoted as saying it
2: just doesn't matter, it doesn't shape who I am, I determine who I am. The one thing it does define, though, is that my father was my father. My mother was my mother. And this is two things that when people talk, oh, adopted, I don't don't use that word. It's like saying you don't need to tell someone that you're black or white or purple. So you don't need to tell someone that you're adopted. So as far as I'm concerned, they're my parents, and that's how I like to call them. How did you fall in love with motorsport? Well, my father used to love to watch F1 and in back in those days, the 70s, you only got it a week later on the black and white TV and we would sit on the couch together and watch it and he would just, we would just talk about like silly talk, but for a young kid, it was getting to spend an hour or two hours with her dad that she never saw. So that was his time with me. And then later on in life, it would still be F1 and we'd, you know, surf the channels, trying to find other motorsport together. He he loved it. You know, his childhood was basically after the age of 18 in a concentration camp. So he had none of that as a child. And he loved the fact that he could share it with me. But still, to end up owning a motorsport team, that passion's got to
1: come from somewhere else.
2: Yeah, it does. My husband loves motorsport as well. And we were at, a, at Mount Cotton at a course and started talking to Peter Hackett, who's a uh, was a racing car driver and instructor, and we started to sponsor him, which turned into sponsoring a car, which turned into starting at the very low end, like Formula 3, which is a, those tiny little open wheelers and working our way up. And I just, every stage I fell in love with it more and more and more, and it was, it was a sport I could do without, it was like a Clayton sport for me. I didn't have to really excel in running or anything, but I could still be a part of a sport. And they have a very, very big motorsport family. And for me, it was like I had a thousand brothers and sisters that I never had. And I just loved the the feeling of it, sitting in the back of a trailer with either Kentucky Fried Chicken or a roll and salamis and cheeses. And it just made me feel normal. Instead of having to put on a business suit and go to a formal dinner or anything else, I could just be Betty. I think that's why I fell in love with it just as much as the cars.
1: Look, I've worked for 10 for a long time and 10's been the home of motorsport for a long time. I, like you, didn't know a lot about the sport, but then I got some exposure to it. One of my favourite memories was at Bathurst and doing Mount Panorama at speed. And I think it was like 260 k's down Conrod Strait and I just kept giving the driver the thumbs up. It was Neil Crompton, I was beside myself. And I witnessed firsthand the skill of those drivers. And I, I just appreciated it on a whole other level. And I think for those that don't understand motorsport, they don't see the skill set in the sport. All they hear is the noise. Do you reckon that's true?
2: I reckon that's very true. I mean, it's very well known. My first venture to Bathurst was waking up in the back of someone's ute. Went to sleep in Double Bay and woke up at Bathurst. But later on in life, before we joined V8s, I didn't even know the series. Daniel would watch it and I'd walk past going, oh yeah, those V8s, cause I was into GT cars. And uh, I kept watching it and watching it. And then one day I just, it snapped and I went, oh my God, let's get into this, let's do this. And um, that started and it was love at first sight. I mean, the GTs GT didn't go out the window. We still kept on doing the GTs, but all of a sudden I just, I found, it's like finding your soulmate in a car. And I loved, I just loved everything about the V8s. So then you went on to be the team owner and director of Erebus Motorsport. Mm -hmm. How did you arrive at the name Erebus? (laughs) Well, a lot of teams, especially when I started, was always named after the owner and like Brad Jones Racing or Dick Johnson Racing. And I just didn't want Betty Clemenco Racing. It just didn't sound racy. (laughs) And I was, we'd had named my GT team and I thought, nah, that name can't be taken through to V8. And that was um, Rocking Angel. And I thought, nah, Rocking Angel's just not a V8 team. And we were still in the GTs and my son and I were in the kitchen. I said, what's a good, because I name all my cars. And at the time I was naming them after Greek gods. So he said, what about Erebus? And I went, okay, what is Erebus? And he goes, well, Erebus was the Greek god of darkness. I said, well, no, everyone will think, you know, that I'm a devil worshiper. (laughs) He goes, not that kind of darkness, he said, is when there was nothing, there was a void. And then his daughter came in and filled the void with light and life and everything else. I said, okay, that sounds good. So off we trottled and we registered Erebus and everything was going fine. Then one day my son comes up and says to me, did you read the bottom of the Wikipedia? And I go, no. He goes, well, they changed Erebus' name. I said, now you tell me? And he goes, yeah, they changed it to Hades. And I went, oh, my God. So when we had the car nine and then changed the other car to 99, the chaplain comes up and says to me, just make sure you don't end up on the roof side by side. And I just didn't even understand what he was saying. And as I walked away, I went, oh, that would make 666. So <laughs> But no, for me, it meant that there was a void. For women, for the Mercedes that I was bringing into VA, it was a void that needed to be filled. And it was a void in me that I needed to fill. And it just kind of just all fell together. When it
1: comes to motorsport, Betty, I mean, there's no question you're a bit of a standout. You're a standout because of who you are, the way you run your business and the way you look. Tattoos, black
2: boots, bleached hair. Was that deliberate or is it just kind of evolved? No, that's been me my whole life. My whole life I've looked like that. There was nothing different. You can go back years and have a look at the things I wore if I wasn't at work. The minute I got home from work, I was more goth when I was growing up and the goth kind of eased into what I am now. You open all my cupboards, it's black, white, grey. That's it. I've never worn colour. Colour just looks wrong on me for some reason. I've worn blue at my son's wedding, but that's about it. I've always been like that. I love tutus. I think tutus are brilliant. Doesn't matter what age you are, you can get away with a tutu.
1: Have you worn a tutu to the
2: track? I've worn a tutu at the top of the mountain. I do it every (laughs) day. They've now become a thing that on the Saturday I put on a tutu And I usually cover, once I covered it in uh, Hungry Jack wrappers and then I covered it in Penrite bottles. And every year I pick a different sponsor and cover it in, in their thing, but I wear a tutu and I go up the top of the mountain with my husband and we walk around for about two hours. And I've got all my little friends up there I see every year, whether they're Ford or Holden, and we all have a great time. And they treat me like a person, not like a Holden or a Ford. I think Erebus itself is very neutral. We do have Holden cars, but it's always, oh, if my team doesn't win, we want Erebus to win. They don't really put us into any mould. Do you care which engine you've got, whether it's Ford or Holden, or how do you make that decision? We made the decision to go from AMG to Holden because my father was very good friends with Sir Frederick Sutton, and I just thought, well, and Ford back then was only a few teams, so I went with the majority But now it's just the badge that's at the front of your car. I mean, I had a fight with Holden.
1: And you build a lot of the cars yourself, don't you? So, you know, so much of it is really Erebus.
2: Oh, yeah. Everything is, yeah, it's just the engine we lease from another team and uh, we do the, the rest of it. A lot of the parts in V8 cars are controlled, so you have no choice. There are a few things you build yourself and everything else is controlled. So it's the little character that you give your car that makes it better than the one next door. And it doesn't matter now whether it's Ford or Holden. I changed my badge for a year. I had an E at the front because I was angry at Holden. <laughs> I know, it sounds it sounds very childish, but...
1: No, I've heard you don't want to get Betty angry.
0: <laughs> but
1: look, team owner, director, Betty Clemenko, the only female owner in a enormously misogynistic, machismo sport. Is gender ever an issue for you or was it ever when you started? Is it now?
2: It was, but not for me. It was for the men because they didn't know what to do. How so? They didn't know how to treat me. I I was fine. I've been dealing with men my whole life. (laughs) I had three sons and uh, everything around me was male, so it made no difference to me. I don't let a word like gender or glass ceilings get in my way because it's just words you know you stomp through it look like you own it and you do but they had a bit of a problem I think they didn't want to like yell at me or do anything else thinking I might cry or you know it was very hard for them at the beginning but I must admit Uh, Jessica Dane now has taken over a lot of what her father does in in the ownership of Triple Eight, and she's doing a great job. But I'm the only female that actually started a team, and I'm very proud of that. I really am. It was a hard thing to do. You're the only female owner that's ever won Bathurst. Yes. And that is the Holy Grail. Yes. I won Bathurst twice, once in the GTs as well, in the 12-hour. I'm very, very proud of what I've done, and I'm proud of the people around me who were there at the time because it's always, you always have different crew. You know, our crew is what keeps us together and it's, we always end up with the oddballs. I think what
1: sets your team apart is that it's a very tight-knit group. You must have decided at one point, what did you want your team to look like? What have you learned in the process about
2: yourself and about leadership? I've learned that leadership in the business world is not the leadership you take with you into motorsport. You need to have a different skill set, and that's why I've put Barry Ryan as my CEO because he grew up in the motorsport world. I must admit, I have to be honest with you, when I went to Holden, I thought, you know what, I'm getting older, I've got grandchildren, and I live in a different state to the team. I don't want to spend my whole day on the phone or on the computer now. I want to take a few steps back. So the leadership belongs to Barry with my benevolent dictator seal of approval. I know that sounds a bit weird, but it works.
1: No, I did read that you're proud of a democracy run by a benevolent dictator. I think the
2: whole world should be run like that. It's uh, chaos, and that's exactly what you have to, in motorsport, there is a lot of chaos. Things happen in one thousandth of a second. You've got to make a decision. You can't just say time out, make a decision and go back. It doesn't work like that. And you've got a boy's life or man's life in your hands. And you need to make a good decision. You've got to make it right the first time. If you don't, it's the end of your race.
1: Clearly, though, as a woman in a male-dominated industry like motorsport, you've got a female mechanic. Has that been part of a deliberate strategy to make sure there's a more level playing field?
2: Not at all. I've always said if you can do the job, you get the job. You can't fake a job in motorsport. You can't say, oh, yeah, I've had experience doing you know shop fronts and and fake your way through it it just doesn't work you if you don't know how to be a mechanic you have to and bonnie who is the female mechanic that we have now we also have a a girl from the army and we had a girl from new zealand who was brilliant But Bonnie, she started off as a fan who went to an official and then she decided to do a mechanics course and she started with our Utes and went to our GTs and she's worked her way through Erebus. And she now has found fabrication, which she's very good at. You know, you have to stick with people. You don't do the baby bathwater thing. And she had such great potential and now she's beginning to show it. You know, it's hard for a girl to be in mechanics because they live together 24 hours a day. They eat, they change, they, and I don't mean sleep together. They travel together. Everything is done together. And she's just taking it all on the chin, like every other girl that I know in motorsport. And we have a female media girl as well. And, you know, we just get down and dirty and do our job and, and help pack the truck and do everything that we're meant to do. And, you earn respect and that's the only thing that you need to get. You don't need gender equality. You need your respect from the people you work with. And in motorsport, it's very, very important to have the loyalty and the respect. And then they just treat you like one of the boys and they make jokes about you, tell you to shut up and everything else, and that's when you know you've made it.
1: You made the AFR Rich List in 2019 for, you know, let's face it, some extraordinary wealth, but you've also been quoted as saying money doesn't bring you happiness, (laughs) and you'll vouch for that. Yeah, look,
2: money doesn't bring you happiness, but I've got this sign in my bathroom. I don't know why it's in my bathroom. It says money doesn't bring you happiness, but it can buy cows that make milk, that make ice cream, that make you happy. So for me that is basically it's I always say to my kids, You can't take it with you, but it doesn't mean that you don't look after it so that your great-grandchildren are taken care of as well as yourself. There's just so many things one person needs in life. And I think once you understand that, that's when you start being a philanthropist, I think. My father was a great philanthropist and my sister runs the charity side of the business. And we give away at least a quarter of our earnings a year to charities and we make sure that the charities are smaller charities that don't get the heads ups and the money goes straight to what they're needed. And uh, we don't need to put our name in lights, but we do, we do love being able to give to people who need it.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
1: Tell me what it was like as a kid, the daughter of a workaholic who was religiously strong and, you know, there's a lot of tumult over the years, wasn't there?
2: Oh, look, just because you have money doesn't make you happy. I remember I would know my father came home by the creaking of his shoes outside my bedroom door and then in the morning he was gone and he, he took my mother's death very, very badly and he just immersed himself in his work. But there were fun times. I mean, my father was crazy as well. He loved to go to the hydro majestic, which is very old for holidays, and it's
1: uh, fancy hotel in the Blue Mountains.
2: Yes, he um, would put on fancy dress, and you know, he'd stick ice cubes down your back, and he would do really. Fun. We've ended up in the most stupid and most funny situations during holidays, and I think they're kind of made up for it. But you can't make up for losing time and. You know, I'm lucky the last couple of years of his life I got to spend a lot of time with him and I did sit down and talk to him and I I did tell him what hurt me, what didn't hurt me and we came to a really good place and as far as I was concerned that was where we needed to be to say goodbye. Look, I'm going through a hard time with my dad He's really unwell and, yeah, you don't want to leave anything unsaid, do you? No, you don't and it might be hard to hear. My dad's been gone now for 21 years. And the one thing I did that I'm so glad I did, I don't even know why I did it, was the night before he died. I gave him eight kisses on his head, on his forehead, and he said, why did you do that? And I said, because eight kisses is enough for me to remember what your forehead feels like. And he just laughed and he got sicker, but he he even made jokes while he was dying. I mean, at one point we are all sitting around his bed and he was very, very quiet and I thought, I looked at my sister like, do I take his pulse or, you know, he, he was white. And then out of the blue, he just says, can we change the subject? And he, he started laughing. And I said, don't do that again. He goes, I like to hear you laugh. And uh, it was the next day that he passed away very early in the morning. But uh, when you laugh, you remember something. You, you remember good things. You remember laughing. The
1: sound of someone's laugh. I don't want to dwell on a, but it, but there was a significant split between you and your dad for a number of years, wasn't there?
2: There was, but you got all of a sudden, because he said that he would never, he wouldn't talk to me because I married Daniel, but he rang every day and his secretary would ring and she said, your father's on the line and then I'd hear a click. And I would sit there for an hour telling him what the kids have done, what I've done. He would never say a word. And then he just went, when he was ready, he used to put the phone down. Wow. So he never actually spoke to me, but he listened to me. And uh, when I had my third son, I was in hospital and he walked in. He didn't talk to me. He looked at my son, who was very, very, he was over 12 pounds and 25 inches or whatever it was. And he says, nice boy and walked out. And after that, we got back together again.
1: How many years did that go on for?
2: About four years, three or four years, but it was a long three or four years. But you know what? We ended up in a better place because he used to say jump, I'd say how high, and after that he'd say jump, and I'd say, hang on a minute, there's someone before you. You know, I was much more relaxed with him after it, after I realized that I could live and I was actually good at living, and I, you know, I could... Clean and I could cook and I could get a job and I, I could catch a bus and I could I could do all those things that I never did.
1: He didn't just cut you off emotionally, he cut you off financially too.
2: Oh, yeah, everything. I went from being very wealthy to living off $19,000 gross a year. That was my husband's pay because I had two little children and I was pregnant with the, with my third child after we got married. And um, you you would be surprised what you can do as a person – I mean, I ended up cleaning, I ended up chefing, I ended up standing in the kitchen for a function, washing pots one night, thinking to myself, just laughing because here I am, who I grew up and who I was, but I'm washing pots and pans at an RSL, but I was making money. You weren't angry with him? No.
1: Even though he rang every day?
2: no, No, I wasn't angry. I learned very early on that anger gets you absolutely nowhere. How did you learn that, Betty? Well, I was five when my mother started getting sick and she had cancer. And she spent a lot of time overseas because we didn't have the treatments that we have now. And she was in Switzerland and she would be in Switzerland a lot with my father as I didn't see them. And we would be left with housekeepers who weren't really the best of housekeepers. And sometimes they'd leave Me, who was like seven years old, and my brother was three alone for a weekend. And, you know, there was a lot of mummy dearest in there. But look, everyone goes through their own journey as a child. But mine was hard. And I think I needed all of that to bring me to who I am today. And my mother's sickness made me angry. But she came home and she, she actually said to me one day, don't be angry because that's, that doesn't take cancer away. It doesn't take sickness away. It just feeds it. It'll feed it. By then she lived with pain for a lot of years. And um, I think two days later she committed suicide. I didn't know she committed suicide till I was in my late 30s, which I found out from my father. But her words about the only words I remember her voice saying in my head, which was 50 years ago. and that's kind of taken me through. I get angry like everyone else. Of course I get angry, but after a day or two, it's under the bridge, it's gone. And I just don't talk to people again. I'm very hard like that. I wipe them out of my life.
1: But your dad wiped you because you married Daniel Mm -hmm. and he wasn't of the right religious faith.
2: Well, it was also the nationality and the age. And meanwhile, he'd married a woman 25 years, his junior, who was only 10 years older than me. So It was okay if you're a man, this is very sexist, but if you're a man, it was okay to marry someone, you know, 25 years younger. But if you're a woman, you couldn't marry someone who was 10 years younger. Look, it was what it was. And he, I asked him once, I said to him, why are you harder on me than you are on other people that have done things 10 times as worse? And he goes, because I love you and it hurts more. And that answer was enough for me. And I said, you just got to respect the fact that I'm in love with someone and that it's not a a phase that is going to end. There's nothing you can do that is going to make this end. So his cousin from Israel actually turned to him and said, look, does he hit her or is he a drunk? And in fact, Daniel was the total opposite. He looked after me like, like I was a queen. Then he got it and uh, then Daniel and him became, su- like they became friends. They understood each other. It's a really remarkable tale, Betty. I was the youngest of four four girls. And only after my father passed away, I wanted to find out. It was mainly for health reasons for my children, if there was anything that was in the family. So I put a private detective on it and I found two of the sisters. And it was actually quite funny because when I rang her, I got a phone number when I rang her. She thought I was ringing for money because they'd just sold her mother's uh, house in Canberra. the the mother was a, she dealt in prostitution and drugs and apparently she'd been Miss Western Australia at one point and she'd lived a life that was very colourful as well. So it looks like there's some things are genetic.
1: I guess you'd have to say your extraordinary journey has given you a resilience that you just can't shake.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it has actually. It has. I block a lot of stuff away because I don't think it's relevant, but Sometimes you just got to stand on the balcony and scream and get that out of you. You know, the more you hold in, the worse it is. You got your first tattoo
1: when you were 47. Do you hate the fact that, you know, you're a book judged by your cover and not the package inside?
2: (laughs) Oh, no, not at all. It makes life more interesting. You know, I got into a lift in Double Bay and there was an old woman in there and it was really hot in the lift, so I took my jacket off and she saw all the tattoos and she jumped and she tried to get into the corner of the lift And I just looked at her, I said, so I put the jacket on and you're happy. I take the jacket off and you think I'm going to kill you. I said, do you want me to put the jacket back on? And she just stared at me and I just laughed. I thought it was funny.
1: Everyone assumes that being wealthy is so easy, have the life of Riley, but there's a big burden that comes with it.
2: Oh, look, my sister and I work so hard to keep what our father started for us and to grow it. And it's not easy. You have to commit your life to this. And I've added motorsport on top of it, but my kids are quite cool. My three sons are quite cool because they're all married and two of them have got children. So with sons, they tend to stray from home, like they go from home. And if you look at every marriage in the world, it's always what the wife wants. So the wife always wins out. Yeah, they go to her place for this or they, you know, it's always directed that way, which is fine by me. My sons come and they, we cook something together or we Skype because one of them lives in Orlando and I think you have to find out what's right for you. I work very hard. My sister works very hard and I don't like it when people think that it just came to us. It didn't just come to us. What we inherited was very small compared to what we have now and that's because we both worked bloody hard and long hours and my brother-in-law to be where we are today and have that safety net behind us.
1: Where does your brother fit into the scheme of things?
2: My brother's intellectually handicapped, paranoid, schizophrenic and autistic and has had cancer. But you know what? This boy is amazing. He gets through everything with a smile and the cancer was the bad. And this was something that grew out of his head. It was like he was wearing a pom-pom on his head and it was huge and he just went into that surgery knowing he was going to come out and he didn't stress it and he's had radiation and all he wanted to do was ring the bell at the end of it so I've looked after my brother since he was born and after my mother died I looked after him for many 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 years and he's now he's got a carer that is is more like family than a carer and she's just amazing with Mark she actually comes to the track with us sometimes to the races just to have a bit of a breather but he's, you know what, he's the cross you bear, but you smile when you bear it. And he's just Mark, you know, he's just, he's my brother, Mark. And he he brings me down to earth. You pat me on the shoulder and go, do you like me, Betty? Do you remember Dr. Smith from Lost in Space? And we have the most ridiculous conversations, but it brings me back down and I love it.
1: Yeah, it's the reality of life, isn't it? You and your sister, Monica, are on the board of the family-owned Terrace Tower Group. And outside of Erebus, as you say, you've grown the legacy. Yes. You stepped up with COVID and Erebus started making some medical equipment. How did that all happen? And what made you jump in?
2: Well, we, one of our engineers, Mirko, he's Italian. And when all this started and it was prevalent in Italy, he couldn't get hold of his parents. He couldn't get hold of his grandparents. He knew that his grandparents were literally sealed in their house. And he wanted to do something. And so he and the CEO, Barry, they were speaking and they decided they would see what they could do here to make the life of the doctors and the nurses better because we needed to keep them safe to heal us. And so they developed a face mask that can be attached to oxygen for doctors and shields and a perspex box. They have another name for it, I can't remember. And the shields are great. And Barry and all the team, they would sit up for hours, like days, making these shields and delivering it themselves to hospitals in Victoria, sending them to hospitals. I think every state, hospitals in every state have got them. And uh, my ex-husband, who I'm still very good friends with, his wife, who I'm extremely good friends with, she rang me and said, guess what, we, I had to take Herman, my ex-husband, to the hospital and the woman was wearing an Erebus medical shield I was extremely proud that it made it all the way to Queensland and that it was used in a communal hospital. The boys just, they like that. They think outside the box. They're all really smart and they just put their heads together and wanted to do something for the community. And my sister and I paid for it ourselves. So we never asked a cent from any of the hospitals because this is not the time to talk about money. This is the time to give. And that's what we tried to do.
1: It's a lovely story and thank you on behalf of everyone because that generosity you can never repay, it's just gratefully accepted. How's COVID affected you personally?
2: Well, I have an underlying illness which is not really known publicly, but... I've had for the last eight years myeloma, which is like bone marrow cancer, but it's kind of, I just go, yeah, 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 I got it. Right. And lucky for me, I've got light chain myeloma, which it means that it's, um, you know, I'll probably die of old age before I die of this, but it does make me tired and I get, I call them bone aches. But, you know, you learn to live with it. So I've had to stay home. And I can't see my grandchildren that often. And when I do come over, I put the mask on and, and everything else. And because of the, I have no immune system, I have to be extremely careful. So I've stayed home except for going to the doctors twice and going to the airport to pick up my dog. We have a, a new puppy.
1: I get one in a couple of weeks. I can't wait.
2: Yeah, I've got Buddy who's now been with us for four weeks, but we're getting a second one, Buster, who's an English uh, bulldog. Oh. This one we got is a French bulldog and we're getting an English bulldog. And you know what? They've kept me very busy. And because I've never cleaned out my house in the last 30 years, I decided that I'd get rid of all the junk. <laughs> I'm not even through two rooms. I need, I need more I need more. lockdown.
1: But if you're immune suppressed, what are you doing surrounding yourself with dust and clutter? Um, you're wearing your mask.
2: I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't look. I come back from every round and I'm always sick for two days. I'm always run down and everything else but I love going and I'm not going to stop going you know some disease or whatever is not going to stop me going to track I just have to be really careful I just that's what I tell myself but basically I still hug I, not I won't now but before I would always be part of the fans and hug them and little kids and that was the icing on the cake for me for v eights with the fans
1: The sport of motorsport, like all sport, is economically challenged because the sponsorship space is sparse. How do you see the future of motorsport this
2: year? I think that we need to go back to the basics of racing. You know, we're an entertainment category. People go there Well. When I first started, people went there because V8s were expensive to run, and they loved the racing, and they loved the grime, and the the cars, and the noise, and the the hitting, and the shoving, and the everything else that's motorsport related. And I think that we have to come back to our roots. I'm not saying that the engines and everything go backwards. But I'm saying our mentality, and it's more about the fans than it is about the corporate side, and we're not F1. We have to remember where we are, who we are and who we race for. And I think once we do that, we will survive. V8s will always survive because guys love their cars. And now, a lot of women like it too. And you see the new generations coming through and that's a lovely thing to see. What do you think it
1: is about the V8s and supercars? It's acclaimed the world over. It's just so different to anything else out there. Why do you think it's so
2: successful? Well, you can see in the e-series that supercars have been running for the last couple of weeks. That
1: that's awesome. I have to say, it is awesome.
2: F1 drivers wanting to be in there, NASCAR drivers wanting to be in there, Indy drivers, V8s. Well, I can't say V8s. I always get into trouble from supercars, but I still call it V8s. They are such a breed that it's its own world, and unless you know, it's It's really hard to actually put into words, but it's something that is primordial, really. It's, uh, you know, everyone goes there and within half the way through the first race, everyone's on their feet, everyone's screaming, everyone's calling every other driver names. And it just brings out the rawness in people and people love it and they love to see it. They love to hear it. They love the noise. And the fact that they can watch it from home is great. You know, We probably won't have fans for the first couple of months, but just the fact that they're back on and the E-Series was great. I, I must admit in the beginning, I was a little dubious, but after about one or two races, I actually forgot that I wasn't on a real track. It was only every so often that you saw the crowd with their arm up doing a pretend wave that you went, oh yeah, it's not real. And I have to
1: say, I think the crashes are more spectacular and knowing no one's getting hurt is actually quite a
2: relief. And knowing I don't have to pay for it (laughs) because people forget. People forget how much it costs to have a crash. Yeah. Besides we have a seat in our car, which is a it started off as a GT seat, but it's the safest seat in the world for drivers. It's a capsule. And it I know that my drivers are going to be fine. So if I sound a little more on the financial side, it's just because I know my drivers will be fine.
1: Oh, I get it. And look, I think just about every sport during this COVID lockdown is feeling threatened and unsure about the future. And yet Motorsport have developed this e-series that's just taken off. People love it. And it may well end up being something that you do hand in glove. It may be a value add to the sport and the experience.
2: Oh, I think they'll keep it going. I think they'll probably stop for a while till we get back on track because it's very hard to get back on track in the middle of a season. So we've, we have to reset the cars. Everything has to be redone. So once we get that back on, I think that they will go back and have this as a continual thing because, you know, it seems to be loved the whole world round. And I must admit, I look forward to Wednesday night. We get the popcorn out and we sit there because I have this tendency if I watch motorsport from home, which I've had to do a bit, I throw popcorn at the television when I get angry. So instead of Barry, my CEO, who has a tendency to swear and carry on and, and scream at the top of his lungs, I throw popcorn. <laughs> my husband actually bought me a Hoover, not a Dyson but a Hoover, to Hoover up the popcorn after every race. <laughs> People look at motor sport and go, well, it's self-isolating. It's a driver and a car. You can't get more self-isolated than that. So drivers are safe. Crew just have to be very careful. And I think we'll slowly get back up to where we were.
1: What's the goal
2: for Erebus? What's your dream? Well, we've just started the Erebus Garage, which is Barry, again, Barry's little dream child, where we're doing custom jobs on cars and uh, fixing cars, you know, just normal people's cars who want special things done to it. It's called the Arabs Garage. Barry said, would you mind if we did? I said, Barry, well, don't even ask me. Just go and do it. And we've already got bookings coming out of our ears. Our crew does know what they're doing when it comes to cars.
1: Well, there's clearly a gap in the market as well.
2: Oh, clearly. You have to diversify now because sponsors, are, sponsors don't even count for half of your uh, Amount that you have to pay every year to to race because it's around for two cars. You can be looking just above an average team for two cars. You can be looking around between eight and ten million. Sponsors get you to about four or five, and then you just got to find the rest. And uh, this is a good way to do it. Not that uh, I hope it brings me in four or five million, but uh, you have to be in a position to know that there are sometimes you got to put your hand in your own pocket.
1: Your story, there's
2: so many amazing chapters, Betty. Uh, Everyone says I should write a book. I have stories about Frank Sinatra. I've got stories about Tom Jones. I mean, I'm one of these people, you throw them in the air and they land in the most interesting situations because they just don't look around themselves. I asked Steve Wall what he did for a living. That's only because I'm so short I couldn't see his face. It was just a man standing next to me.
1: Tell us the Frank Sinatra story.
2: Um, My father, they built Westfield and next door they built the Boulevard Hotel. And my late ex-stepmother and I were standing in the lobby of the Boulevard waiting for my father. And she was a very tall, very imposing woman. And she she looked like uh, Sophia Loren but in a, a different way. And at that time it was platform shoes, so I had my platforms on. I had the long blonde hair and it was in the 70s. The next thing I know, these two men grab us and throw us in the lift and Clara's yelling at the top of her voice, do you know who my husband is? And we're going to ring the police and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they dragged us up and threw us in a room and there's Frank Sinatra, And Frank stood up and said, you idiots, do they look like two prostitutes? They thought, the guys had come down and thought we were prostitutes. They were told there was one dark head and one blonde. And they took us into his suite. And then Clara started to scream and he goes, I am so sorry, I'm so sorry. So he signed me an autograph that said, from one blue eyes to another, I am so sorry. Just things like that just happened.
1: Well, Betty Clemenko, you are a trailblazer, (laughs) a superstar in the world of motorsport. But I just think... Your messaging, what you stand for, your strength of character and the messages that you not just give to your family but everyone in motorsport and Australian women is so powerful. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here at Short Black. We really appreciate it.
2: Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Enjoyed it. You have been listening to Short Black,
1: a 10 First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Ten Speaks' latest podcast, Ten News First Person, will bring you amazing stories from all over the country, stories that matter from journalists with passion. I'm Rialda Jacobs and I'm proud to present these stories to you. You can find Ten News First Person on the Ten Speaks page, on Ten Play or wherever you listen to podcasts.